This episode of the Baby Tribe podcast is proudly sponsored by HappyTummy.ie, the exclusive distributor of BioGaia probiotics for babies. That's right. And as parents ourselves, we know how crucial it is to prioritize our children's health. BioGaia probiotics have been clinically proven to support digestive health and reduce the duration of crying in babies experiencing colic. Absolutely. And HappyTummy.ie makes it incredibly convenient for parents to access these products. Amazing. So for all your probiotic needs, head on over to happytummy.ie. And Baby Tribe listeners can enjoy a 10% discount on all products at happytummy.ie with the code BABYTRIBE10. Okay, let's get on with the episode. Welcome to the Baby Tribe podcast, where we will explore the beautiful chaos of parenthood and discover the joys and challenges of nurturing our little ones. We are your hosts, Katie Mugan and Afif El-Kafash. Each week, we'll bring you the latest information on all things to do with parenting and delve into insightful conversations with experienced parents to bring you practical tips, heartwarming stories, and a dose of laughter that every parent can relate to. So grab your coffee, find a cozy spot, and join us as we embark on this unforgettable journey of parenthood together. Welcome to the Baby Tribe. What cozy spot is a parent going to find? Just put on your ear pods and out you go for that walk and you'll get to tune in and listen to myself and Afif talking everything small babies related. Let's get to it. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Baby Tribe podcast, the podcast where you find all the relevant information, all things to do with child health and parenting. Before we get started, please remember to subscribe to our podcast and please rate us and give us a review wherever you listen to our podcast to help us reach more people going forward. Katie, how are you doing? I'm good, Afif. We were in the throes of uh, all the kids trying to decide what they're going to be for Halloween. Already. I know. It starts early, but I'm always one of those moms that we talk about it for quite a while. I make lists, but I never fulfill them until last minute. And then it's running around like a headless chicken trying to get their costumes sourced. Yeah, I mean, we're at a stage now where my daughter wants nothing to do with us during Halloween. She wants to hang out with her cool friends and go to Halloween parties and do kind of scary stuff. Yeah, so the era of getting dressed up is kind of coming to an end for us. And I remember the last time we all got dressed up and I can't believe I was able to convince everybody to do this. We were big into Spider-Man at the time when the Spider-Man movies were out. And I ordered four sort of movie grade <laughs> Spider-Man costumes for the four of us and we, I convinced them all to, to, to put them on. I am learning new things about you every day, Afif. Yeah, I so cannot believe you were the instigator here. Oh, definitely. And we actually walked around the neighborhood with, with the gear and the masks. So nobody knew who we were um, doing trick-or-treating with our two kids in, in Spider-Man costumes. Oh my God, because what I did last year, was it last year or the year before? I actually bought an Angry Bird costume because we call Jim at home. We reference kind of him as, refer to him as the Angry Man. So um, he's not, he just, you know, he goes from zero to a hundred very quickly. So we all call him the angry bird. And I got him an angry bird costume and sent him out with the kids. Oh, amazing. <laughs> well, I said I'd stay at home and do the trick or treating, like open the door yeah. to all the kiddies. Yeah. So now we're all, we, we're still in full, full Halloween mode. Yeah. But even with the trick or treating, you really have to up your game with what you provide to these um, kids these days. You know, I know you have to think of the allergies. Like lo and behold, can, you do, remember, can do peanuts. Years ago, yeah. we used to have just you put your hand in and uh, like literally you got loads of loose popcorn or monkey nuts. Like I even said to my kids, you don't know how lucky you are. We used to get stale popcorn. Yeah. Apples thrown in, Apples. oranges, yeah. fruit. fruit yeah. I said, you'd be lucky if you made maybe, you know, you got a bit of money, 10 or 20, pay, uh, 20 cent. And then I'm like, God, we sound really old. Yeah. So when I say that, I sound like my parents. 
But like now it's all like I have neighbours, they all do organised bags. I remember last year as a joke, I um, these kind of kids knocked on trick or treat and I brought out a bowl of fruit just as a joke. <laughs> to see, and they actually looked at me going, they literally said, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. the parents were looking at me going, dude, what are you doing? I was like, I'm only kidding. I'm yeah. only joking here. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. No, I've all the neighbours now, they're so good, but they do organised bags. We're not so organised. I just have like... Bars, sweets, all that kind of stuff. My biggest problem is trying to estimate how much sweets to buy for the trick-or-treaters because I always end up overbuying and then the last few kids literally get buckets. It's like, take it all, take it all. Well, you see, you're in an established estate, so you probably know that most of the kids are kind of coming to that little bit older age group, whereas we're in a very brand new estate. So like all the kids are getting older and older. Like I'd say Luke is kind of one of the older age groups. So he kind of doesn't obviously associate with us because he's way too cool. Lily now even goes out with her friends. It's the youngest two that I send Jim out with because it's always raining and I hate getting wet. So I send Jim off. It's freezing. Like we froze in their Spider-Man costumes, you know, because you can't (laughs) wear it. But you still did it. We still did it. We still did it. So our kids put on the uniform, put on the whole costume. And I'm like, this is pointless because then they put coats on over it because they're going to get wet. So you can't see what they are anyway. Exactly. So that's the Black plastic bag. Bag was great in our day. I know, I know. Anyway, what are we talking about today before our interview? Well, this is all your topic. I know, it's my bread and butter. And I've just realised that we've been doing this for so long and I haven't actually talked about this topic, which is what I do mostly from day to day, which is preterm babies. Oh, I love the pretermers. Yeah, and the ones I'm going to focus on, you hear about the extremely premature babies that need intensive care management and they are in the neonatal unit for a long period of time. Those aren't the ones that we're going to talk about today. We may talk about them in a future episode, but the ones I want to focus on today are ones that are labeled as the late preterm infants. So those are the babies that are born between 34 weeks and 36 weeks and six days. So they're in this sort of category that I feel sometimes are regarded as just being fine. And we sometimes trivialize the problems that they may encounter. We often don't admit those babies to our special care baby unit or intensive care unit. And we often leave late preterm babies with their parents. But I think it's important to recognize that being born in the late preterm phase uh, actually comes with its own issues that that are worth mentioning. And the interesting thing is, I think it's about 15 to 20 years ago, up until then, those babies were labeled as near-term babies rather than late preterm babies. And The reason the term has changed is to emphasize that they are more preterm than term. They are closer to behaving like preterm infants than they are term infants. And we felt as a profession that labeling them as a near term baby may trivialize their issues. What do you think? Definitely. Um, Even in clinical practice, I would find an awful lot of late uh, pre-termers would actually have more feeding issues. They can be slower to feed, but because I suppose they do stay with the parents and they kind of go home relatively quickly from discharge from hospital, I suppose parents, I don't think, are aware that they can be a bit more, a bit slower with regards to feeding and they have more issues, I would generally say. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at the data over the last several years, the actually number of babies that are born in that gestational age bracket between 34 and 36 and six weeks is actually increasing. So it's important to raise awareness about the problems that they may encounter. So why are we seeing this, this increase? Well, there are several risk factors for it. We know that 
in the um, era of increasing use of assisted reproductive technologies and IVF, that there's an increase in the incidence of multiple births. And also there is an association with an increased risk of delivering slightly preterm when um, ART is used. And also women are having babies at a later stage in their lives. So the average age is getting older. I think in the rotunda at the moment, the average age is about 34, 35, which is much higher than it was about 10, yeah. 15 years ago. And you know, that actually increased the risk of having a premature birth. And also what we're seeing is that the rates of comorbidities, so the illnesses are increasing. So yeah. our population, unfortunately, is becoming more unhealthy in terms of weight and other comorbidities. And all of these things increase the risk of having premature babies. So there is an increase in the number of births in this age categories. And you mentioned um, some of the problems that they may encounter. So do you want to talk to us a little bit more about the feeding challenges that they may encounter? Yeah, I think when we look at the, like whether breastfed or formula fed or bottle fed by that, I mean, they can be just a little bit slower to take feeds. They can take longer to feed. They can feed very small amounts, but way more frequently. They can tire, particularly when we look at the breast, they can tire an awful lot uh, quicker. Um, so parents just need to be aware of that and really focus and watch their feeding and ensure that they're actively feeding. Um, breastfeed, like babies at this age can definitely breastfeed um, depending on how effective they are at transfer or depending on have they any other comorbidities, then it can impact whether they exclusively breastfeed or sometimes they need top-ups, but depending, they could be topped up with their or with breast milk, Not doesn't necessarily need to be formula, but it really just depends. A lot of babies, um, even the, like I find and what I would see in practice, sometimes the 36-weekers can be slower than the 34 or 35 weekers born. I don't know if there's any research on it, but just in practice, that's what I'd often see. Yeah, I think in general, and what we forget is that the uh, the suck, swallow, breathe coordination doesn't really get fully established until your term time or your due date. So babies that are born between these gestations sometimes can have a discoordinated yeah. suck and swallow mechanism, and we need to give them time. And we spoke previously about the benefits of maybe harvesting colostrum beforehand. Oftentimes in this situation, these births happen before the time where you actually would harvest colostrum. So you might have that buffer to try and support them. The other thing is we spoke previously about how little milk babies need over the first 24 hours. That sometimes doesn't apply in babies that are preterm. Their fat stores aren't that established and they may not be able to tolerate low blood sugars in the first couple of days um, as a healthy, robust term baby might do. So it's very important to emphasize that we need to be responsive to those babies' needs early on, recognize that they can fatigue early in terms of feeding, support them with supplementation in terms of additional milk uh, in any way that, that we can to help them um, begin to gain weight um, as soon as, as is feasible. I think the parents just need awareness as well, because oftentimes that's all done within the hospital setting and parents are discharged and they, you know, they go home and then they hit more challenges because one, I suppose the parents themselves, it's tough work. You could be feeding this baby little and often very, very frequently. They could be feeding hour to two early, but also it's important the baby gets the rest in between. So it's like watching and focusing on all aspects of the newborn. But I think it can be challenging, particularly when it comes to feeding. Uh, whether breastfeeding or even bottle feeding infants, we do see that sometimes that they can be very slow. They take a lot of work uh, giving support to the cheeks while feeding, looking at the positioning and everything else. Um, in these infants, yes, we try to pace feed, but pace feeding and really slowing down the feed too much can actually be more of a hindrance. So it's just finding the right balance between keeping the bottle steady and things like that. Just I think education is key on discharge. Yeah, absolutely. And then moving on from their feeding issues, we we must remember that babies that are born 
um, in the late preterm phase because sometimes find it hard to regulate their temperature and keep their temperature steady. So in the early um, postnatal period after a baby's delivered, we keep a close eye on these babies' temperatures because sometimes they may need to be in an incubator so that they can begin to regulate their temperatures um, in a better way. And that could take them a few days for them to be able to achieve that on their own. So it's important to recognize that, you know, they run the risk of being hypothermic, meaning that they may drop their temperature. The other thing that's important to keep an eye on is hypoglycemia, meaning that they may drop their blood sugars and that ties in with their sometimes poor feeding over the first few weeks. One thing we also watch out for is something called apnea of prematurity that can still affect preterm babies. And that's where babies can have prolonged pauses in their breathing because their sort of brainstem center is not yet fully stimulated to kind of kickstart their regular breathing. And babies sometimes need a few days of close monitoring to make sure that they don't have these apneic episodes or episodes where their breathing pauses for a prolonged period of time. And we would only sort of discharge babies once we are sure that they don't have those. Now, luckily, it is not that common in babies that are born between 34 and 36 weeks, but it can still happen. And finally, one of the issues that's important to highlight is that they could still suffer from the premature lungs as well. So they may have sometimes features that may suggest that their lungs are still um, underdeveloped and slightly more premature than we'd expect. And they may need support in terms of oxygen and sometimes higher level of support. So whenever there's an expected delivery between 34 and 36 weeks, our team, the team of experts that deal with premature babies, would be there to assess your baby immediately after birth, to look for signs of struggling with their breathing, temperature dysregulation, we check the blood sugars, and our aim is to always leave the baby beside the mum, unless the weight dictates that we have to admit the baby to the intensive care unit, because below a certain weight, they don't tend to regulate their temperatures very well. And sometimes just with regards to the temperature, you'll often find, I know when if the baby was term, we always say, you know, a, you know, a vest and the baby grow. And depending on the type of weather, you might have a cardigan. These infants would nearly always have the cardigan on top. And oftentimes on discharge, we would recommend the baby keeping the hat on at home, which goes against what we would generally say for most term infants um, or uh, if they were higher weights at birth, that they wouldn't have a hat on at home because we allowed them to expel the heat if they do overheat. Whereas it goes against that with the preterms, the late preterms. Yeah, exactly. And once you go home, I suppose we would only let the baby go home once they are in a state where you could manage them as you would a term baby. So a lot of mums and parents worry God, what am I supposed to do? And the advice would be once they are fit for discharge, we would usually recommend that you treat them as you would in terms of your feeding and everything. And sometimes we do have checks in place where we would bring the baby back and the family after a day or two back to the hospital to check the baby's weight, check the baby's jaundice to make sure that things are fine after being at home for a short period of time. And the public health nurses are excellent that they're always aware to do additional checks um, in babies that are kind of sent home that are slightly more premature. Did you have many babies that you cared for in your public health nurse life? Oh God, yeah, uh, a lot. I worked in neonates in Australia. Okay. Um, so would have most, but yeah, we'd have loads of pre, like late pretermers. So with the public health nurse, it just depends on, on what care needs the, within the family, but they will be, they're always a really good source. So they generally follow up. And if it's weekly weights, because sometimes just watching the weights, depending on how the baby is made, are going, they would do regular weight checks. Then the GP is always linked in. So that for the two week check, they generally will always go back to the maternity hospital yeah. though anyway for a kind of term check, regardless of what age that they're discharged yeah. at. And then finally, before we move on to our guest, 
a lot of parents ask, well, what does that mean for my baby in the long term? How is birth between 34 to 36 weeks affect my baby down the line? And what I would say is, by and large, babies tend to do very well when they are born in this gestational age bracket. If you look at the literature and if you examine the um I suppose, science behind it, you will find sometimes associations made with development and being born this early and also an increased risk of certain conditions. But by and large, we don't tend to see that in practice. I think there's a lot of other issues that may have led to premature birth that may be the true culprit rather than premature birth itself. But generally, there is a slight increase in the risk of them getting childhood asthma, but that can be managed very well. And also there's a slight increase in um, getting type 2 diabetes when they're an adult. But again, with a good healthy lifestyle and a good, I suppose, um, looking at diet and exercise, those kind of risks can be kind of averted as well. I didn't know that actually about, I knew about the asthma, but I didn't know that about the diabetes. Yeah, there are slightly increased risk of diabetes and some, um, you know, things like that. But by and large, babies tend to do very, very well. And if the mother breastfeeds, because we know that is um, a protective factor, it reduced the risk to the mother and the baby. Would yes. that still be yes, the case I, with the preter- late pretermers? And I actually think that some of those increased risks that we see with premature babies may be to do with the fact that they're probably less likely to have a longer breastfeeding journey than babies that are term. So are the risks that we're seeing related to prematurity itself or their feeding? Nobody has really looked into that properly. Mm-hmm. I sometimes suspect that it could be a mixture of the two. And that's where I suppose our chat last week about our microbiome and probiotics may come in play because we know babies that are born preterm have a different microbiome profile than babies that are born term. So, you know, will the use of probiotics be helpful in this situation Um, We know that they're helpful in certain situations, but to answer this specific question, I think more studies need to be done. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Anyway, moving on to our guest. Who do we have on today, Katie? We have Sabrina Hill joining us today, and I'm so excited about this one. I think I say that on every um, start of every uh, podcast episode. I'd be worried if you weren't excited (laughs) about our guest. Well, we have Sabrina Hill, who is a hairdresser, a business owner, a social media creator, mom and contributor to TV shows like Ireland AM and This Morning. She owns her own salon in Cork City, a copper hair salon, and she is a mother of two, Aaron, who is 21, and Robin, who is four months old. You are very welcome with us today. Sabrina, we are delighted to have you join us today. How about you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Oh, a little bit of background. So I am a hairdresser. I'm a businesswoman and I have two children. So I have Aaron, who is 21 years of age. He's off gallivanting in Galway in college at the moment. And I recently had a little baby. After a very tough pregnancy, I had a little baby boy, Robin, who is now four months old. Wow. So when you look back, um, I know you've had two very different journeys and kind of there's a bit, bit of a gap in between it. But we look and focus on your most recent birth. Um, tell us, did you feel prepared for his arrival? Did you feel like beforehand you were ready for what lay ahead? I really felt that I was totally ready. And I think that's because when I had my son 21 years ago, I definitely wasn't ready so I made more of an effort like let's say kind of like in learning a little bit more and I was going on my past experience as well as kind of like learning kind of the new techniques really there were so many new things that are around now um, since 21 years ago so I was I felt like I was um and also I was really looking forward to his arrival because I had a very very tough pregnancy so I felt that like literally I was able to kind of I, I was looking forward 
to giving birth, to having him and to kind of continuing that kind of journey. I know you poor devil. I did follow you on Instagram and I could see how hard your pregnancy was. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you went through just initially? When I became pregnant at around the eight week mark, I started to get very, very unwell. Um, I had hyperemesis, which was never diagnosed on my first pregnancy. And it came back with a bang this time round. But it was also accompanied with migraine. So from about eight weeks onwards, right up to when I gave birth, I spent an awful lot of time inside in hospital. I spent um, in the CUMH and I was attached to a drip <laughs> and I was vomiting quite a lot. I was very, very unwell and anything like I never got a vomiting bug in, in my, my life until I got pregnant. And then I got two vomiting bugs. I got COVID. I got so unwell. I got the flu. I had everything thrown at me. So it was a really, really tough journey that way. Um, I was very, very lucky that I had a great obstetrician um, who was really understanding and really, really helped kind of solve any problem that he kind of could um, with my pregnancy. So it was a, it, it shocked me because I had such a different view of what kind of pregnancy I was going to have. I thought I was going to be doing yoga. I thought I was going to be just like so, <laughs> it was going to be so calm and I was going to enjoy it so much more because my previous pregnancy just wasn't planned. But that's, look, you can't plan anything in life. That's the one thing I've learned from this whole experience. Yeah, and that's a case in point that you can't even plan what happens during the pregnancy. I mean, what you went through sounds absolutely horrendous, having those horrendous migraines and also feeling nauseous Mm. all the time and just not being able to keep anything down. I think a lot of the time it's minimized and it's um, important to highlight that it's such a debilitating condition I mean, we've seen in the media how it's really hard to get hold of the anti-emetic medication for pregnant mums. And I think that's in part, it's partly because a lot of the times it is probably minimized. Oh, you're a bit nauseous, you know, get over yourself. Where in -hmm. reality, it's such a debilitating condition, isn't it? I think there's two parts to this. The first part, I think, is that women in general, we're very good at putting down our illnesses and our and our sickness. And I think that like there's many times I've even heard my own mother have a headache and she said, oh, I'll have a cup of tea and it'll disappear. And I think if women who have, because morning sickness is something that exists and, and like, even if you're at the extreme version of it, it's something that you'll say, oh, I'll be better tomorrow. Um, that, that's the number one thing. I think us as women kind of tell ourselves oh I'm not sick enough to go to hospital or I'm not sick enough to kind of like to expect medication the other side of it is and I have no problem saying this because I was very open about it online it is an extremely privileged medication it's something that it is very easy for someone quite easy not very easy quite easy to obtain if you are a private patient And time and time again, when I spoke about this online, especially, um, it became really evident that there was a lot of people who struggled to meet a consultant obstetrician during their pregnancy, particularly in the first 15 weeks, to actually get these forms signed to get the medication. Because that only came around, I suppose, kind of halfway through my pregnancy. I was horrified to see the expense that it puts on women. And I have spoke to so many women in the meantime who have said like there was a choice of putting food on the table or taking medication. And just in this day and age, people just couldn't afford to take the medication. And it put such, I I often saw when I was inside in the hospital, I must say I was always taken so seriously 
Um, and there was times I went in and I just, I wasn't even vomiting, but it was so unbelievably unwell. And, and they were excellent. The care inside in the maternity hospital was amazing. But there, there were so many other women in there that were the same way. And a lot of them, a good few of them, weren't taking medication. And I can just imagine if it was just more readily available and, and you know, even from an earlier kind of start, they would be in a situation where it could ease off the emergency room and services like that could be used for stuff that was just a lot more serious even though everything is serious when you're pregnant you have to you know be cared for that was something that I felt that was very privileged yeah I mean it's it's an it's an important point that you bring up that sometimes healthcare is not always equitable you know and and we need to we need to hopefully improve on that and change that going forward and moving on You've obviously following the delivery. Was it different to your first pregnancy? Where you did you feel that you were more um, prepared for having a baby? I know it's a big gap in between. Um, what were the differences between the two? Well, the first difference was that I went for the natural birth the first time round. Um, I had my son quite early, but this time round I opted to go for a planned section. There was a couple of reasons for this. The first reason was hyperemesis just absolutely controlled my life for all of those months and I felt that for me I needed to be in control um having spoken as well with my obstetrician and because of my age and because he wanted me to come in two weeks you know earlier for delivery um we just felt that it was a better option and actually at the end I would have had no option because of the position that Robin was inside me he was transverse so there was it would have been a section anyway but it was so calm I remember being so scared about having um the epidural because my first um I suppose experience of that 21 years ago was not nice <laughs> it was awful and this time round all I remember was the anaesthetist saying it's not going to hurt I promise you that and I was like okay and it didn't hurt and it was just so calm everyone was very calm inside in the theatre and Robin was out before we even knew it and it was it it was lovely. I was very sick after delivery. I actually never spoke about that online, but um, I had hyperemesis so badly for a number of hours in recovery, and I didn't really hold Robin until properly until the next day. But at that stage, then I was just it, everything was just so calm as well. Everyone was calm around me, so it was a really good experience. Yeah, that's good, and that brings us on to, I suppose, asking: Did, did you feel well supported in the hospital when Robin was born? 100% I mean everything from every single of all of my experiences from when before my pregnancy and after having him like all of the nurses the anaesthetists the doctors everything so so well supported and I actually felt that everyone could give me some of their time as well I never felt rushed in any way or anything like that it was a really really good experience particularly when I was so sick as well afterwards I just felt that they gave me time to explain everything. Yeah, and how long how long did the sickness take to get better after delivering? Oh, I had him on the Monday. Yeah. And Tuesday morning, I woke up and I was like, I'm starving. Wow, that must have been such a great feeling. I know. You know what the really weird thing is, right? There was a taste in my mouth for about eight and a half months. And I couldn't actually put my finger on that taste while I was sick. But now I know it was like a metal taste. And the best way to describe the whole lot was that it was like having, you'll understand this now, you will understand this. It was like having the flu. It was like having a hangover <laughs> as well and a vomiting book. Yeah. That's what hyperemesis is kind of like. So then the day afterwards, when all of that clears, all I could do was I could smell bread. But that was one thing I really noticed. Even like plain sliced pan, 
was beautiful. Lettuce was beautiful. So the next day I was able to eat and I, oh, I appreciated life so much. And I can definitely empathise because we all know that man flu is worse than all of that put together. Isn't that right? <laughs> Could you imagine men with, hype, uh, with high premises? I would be. I'd say they would maybe <laughs> and they'd never leave. I would be a nightmare. I would be an amateur. I think I for one, think I think for one, the drug would be free. Let's just be honest. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know. I think men would handle labour better than my brown. Do you think so? I don't think so. Yeah. No, no, I don't think so. Well, I'm speaking personally. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'd be the biggest wuss ever. Yeah, because yeah, a lot of women will say that actually that have high premises that they actually could go through labour a million times over than go through the time they spent during the pregnancy that was so ill. And actually, to point out. Three weeks before I had Robin, I got a UTI that oh, I triggered contraction. I had a contraction every single hour, right up for like two and a half weeks, right up to the delivery. And I managed that better than in the height of my hyperemesis when I was around kind of 15, 16 weeks gone. Let's just say we're strong. It's pretty incredible. Stronger than yeah. the men anyway. I, I, I fully agree. Yeah, no argument from me. Sabrina, tell us, I know that you are self-employed. So when it comes to work, it's always a little bit more difficult when you are self-employed. Did you get time, like, did you get to take proper time off? And I know that in advance, you probably didn't get, you were kind of off sick probably quite a bit. So were you able to take a little bit of a chunk afterwards or did you have to kind of literally jump back into the salon and that? I, I had to jump back in. I was back at five weeks. Oh, wow. Which... There was just certain things that happened that I, I needed to come in. I'm so blessed. I love what I do. And the joy of being self-employed was that I was able to then say, I am not coming in until 10 o'clock. I'm finishing up at 4 p.m. And everyone was very, very understanding. I think I would be less okay about that had I not had hyperemesis because I was off for the for a huge amount of my pregnancy so come and I don't remember I remember saying to clients when I was doing their hair even now when some there was a lady in this morning and I said to her I don't remember doing your hair like around Christmas time and after that so I can't remember being working so I feel like I've had my maternity in one way and then I suppose you just know when you're self-employed you're going to have to go back it's there's no negotiation around that it's hard to have people say to you oh poor you you're back and stuff like that it it is what it is and I just had to come back I'm just so lucky that my mum is there to help me I fear support from my mum and dad without them I wouldn't be back that's that's for sure yeah, support is key, like for anyone that has to go back earlier, even when you do go back, no matter when it is, if you've got a good support network around you, it can make that transition a little bit easier. Have you found that having had uh, Robin um, even now and your previous son, has your kind of leadership style within the salon or within your work uh, changed? Do you feel like you've changed now that you're a mom of two within your work life? No, I, I actually I haven't noticed anything like that. I have noticed that I am so organized. <laughs> I'm so organized because I have to be. And I've surprised myself um, by being so organized. Kind of work hasn't changed for me totally. Um with I'm very see, I'm very, very lucky as well that in my business that I I I have everything delegated. I have good managers in place and that and everyone helps me. The support is there as well. I'm really aware that because I need to be really aware that like the guys here in, in like at, at work need that support too do you know I'm really aware that because I was an, an employee once and you have to be fully there and if you can't be fully there you need to delegate that kind of out um I actually work online as well I find that more difficult 
I have help here in the salon if things kind of go miss. But like if I have deadlines for my online work, I find that exceptionally hard actually getting on top of that. And I'm back doing that work after two weeks. You've come back to work so early after after Robin has delivered. I think it's something to be celebrated and it's something to, 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 to be spoken about because, you know, we were talking earlier that you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't as a woman. If, you, if you're mm-hmm. seen to go back early to work, you may be accused of, you know, you're not giving your baby your full attention. And if you do the flip side and decide to spend a year or two with your baby away from work, then you're labeled as not being driven and not kind of giving yes. your career. Women are their own worst enemies. And the one thing I have really noticed um, from being online as well is that women love projecting their own emotions and uh, on other women. And I will say that there has been a huge amount of, oh, poor you, when it came to returning to work. And I can imagine, I'm a very strong person and, and I love what I do, but I can imagine if anyone was in the position where they had no choice but to return to work um, and or, or if they were feeling that little bit weak because women after having babies are so emotional anyway. And if you have a number of women saying, poor you, like you're going to feel so guilty, you're going to feel worse about yourself and your situation no matter what it is. So I did speak out about it a couple of times. Because I'll be honest with you, I got so irritated. <laughs> I don't get irritated that much, but I really did from the whole kind of, oh, poor you, I'd hate that. It's awful for you, that kind of attitude. And you're right, it should be celebrated. I think it's something with women we should celebrate and mind and support each other that way as well. A sort of overarching theme that's coming through our interviews with our kind of high profile mom guests is society almost expects mums to feel guilty for doing that and that really should be challenged and we should stop as a society to put that expectation on women because sometimes it's I think it's a societal construct and you know that you know you should feel guilty for doing what you did because you're leaving your baby alone or somebody else is minding your baby and again that's total bs because you know the, the care you give for your baby is the relationship between you and your baby and nobody else has the right to comment on or interfere with and you know what is best for you and your baby given your situation so it's important to highlight yeah because i think it's so unique that if like many moms will decide to stay home and they enjoy being at home but i have equally and i will say from my side i actually loved being at home and spending that time but i had friends that i remember when they were going back i was like oh how do you feel she's like "I'm, i'm delighted i actually can't wait to get back and feel that part of normal for her and i was like look we're all equal in her own right. But I remember and my second child, actually, Lily, I had changed jobs and a job came up and it was, you know, I was, she was about three and a half months. I didn't have a choice. It was either take it or you don't have the opportunity to go with that job. So I was like, look, Jim was like, it's come up. This is what you want. Go for it. And I remember taking this job and I remember down the line, Lily would have been a real, not a cling on, but she would have been real attached to me. And I remember a friend just randomly saying, I wonder if she's so clingy because you, you went back to work so early. And it was honestly like a knife went into my back. Now she meant nothing, no malice. It was a really easy comment that came out, but that stuck with me. And it always has that I kind of went, oh my God, maybe that's why she's a bit more insecure. Now she just had a really good bond. When you look at it now and I look back and reflect, I go, actually, she actually had a really good bond with me, but that killed me. So I do think you're right. I think sometimes us as women, we nearly, we're our own worst enemy. We kind of say these things so flippantly, but actually they can have a big impact on somebody. And I've done that myself, especially with regards, and, and I know because it was only when I kind of went to Katie about getting a consultation about feeding. I have done it myself. I have come to yeah. the past. I know that I said to someone, oh, would they be better on the bottle? Like, what a thing to say or do you know like I think when it comes to feeding your children we can say things that are totally out of line with what that other parent has decided to do for their children 
I hold my hands up. I have until I, and it's uneducated and it's just projecting your own thoughts and feelings on a situation as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the language that we use is very, is very important as well. Sometimes we say words flippantly or things flippantly that we sort of don't realize can have a long lasting impact on the person, you know, at the other end of it. And I also think though kids play an important part in the guilt because, you know, they can be manipulative. They can make you feel guilty for, you know, going to <laughs> Oh, they going pull at those work. heartstrings. Oh, they pull at the heartstrings. So I remember when we were, we were in Canada and my daughter was only two. She hasn't even turned two. And now I've had to go on call. So she'd be gone for 24 hours. And the guilt that my daughter used to instill in, in Anne, poor Anne leaving for the 24 hour period. And then she'd look at me when they're gone and I'm there stuck with her for 24 hours, stuck with her typical dad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> stuck with her for 24 hours. She'd look at me and say, you're not mama. You don't come near me. And it was a battle. She's so smart. Oh, yeah. She used to like, I know it was, um, yeah, it's a challenge. So the kids, I think play a part in the, in the guilt, don't they? They definitely do. Yeah. I want to sort of go back to talking about your um, career. You've obviously, you know, have done extremely well and you um, are excelling at your business. We want to see whether you have any advice to new parents, maybe that maybe are in a similar situation where they are self-employed and they're about to embark on parenthood and they're worried about struggling after the delivery of the baby? Well, I think the first thing you need to do is take every single day, one day at a time, because things change so, so quickly. And sometimes you're worrying about things and they never happen. And then something big can happen as well. You cannot control anything. So you just have to control the controllables. The next thing, I suppose, what I think more than anything else is that you have to be very, very honest with yourself and honest with everyone else. I suffered severely with postnatal depression after my first baby. I ended up inside the hospital for a, for a long, long time. And I think a lot of that was from not speaking and not talking and, and saying how I was feeling because I remember the first couple of weeks after Robin even just how upset I was and crying the whole time and nearly a little bit scared to say it in case people thought it was some mental health issues again. But if you're a person that has to return back to work and you have a career, if you hold on to an awful lot of that emotional baggage, it's going to seem a whole lot worse and it's going to filter down through your whole workload, your workday, and it'll affect everyone that works around you as well. And if you're always that little bit more honest and if you actually just say, look, I'm having a really off day today. I didn't get sleep last night with the baby. I'm trying my hardest People will understand so much. People will help you as well. They'll be more understanding and knowing that they have to step in maybe and help you with your role. I think being honest is so, so important because most of the time other women have been in that. And a lot of men as well. There's a lot of men as well, um, new dads who have been through like sleepless nights and supporting their partners as well. So I think honesty is actually huge. I mean, it's very hard to kind of speak about the support and what people have because everyone's situation is different. I'm like so lucky that I have my mother. But a lot of people don't have that either. But I think just being really honest with yourself and honest with everyone else will really help you not feeling like a burden. Yeah, and acknowledge that there is no shame and there's nothing wrong with actually looking for the help, you know? And I think that's an important message to send out that there's no shame in um, looking for help to help you achieve your maybe career aspirations earlier than expected or to try and manage your situation because it takes a village, right? And we've said that a few times on the podcast and you absolutely need to celebrate doing that. Any 
sort of books or podcasts that you listen to that might be helpful to parents? Well, the first one is yours. <laughs> well done, I, Sabrina. I, yeah, correct. I never thought that I would be listening to a parent's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but like, literally, Baby Tribe, like, is, it is genuinely one of the absolute best out there um, for getting information. I just think you both come at it from a really good angle um, and educating people in a normal cop on way I think that's that's really really good because I don't have I don't have time for fads or trends or anything what you give is real medical knowledge and you know down to earth advice that helps so so much yeah thank you so much you find a lot of the time I'll be honest with you when it comes to to that there's very little I I kind of listen to podcast wise when it has come to it because I've been very very focused on getting my information where I needed it so I'm more of a stories girl and I'm more of accounts so I follow both of you and I also follow Lucy Wolf I found her really really interesting with regards kind of sleep wise and stuff like that so and I think we're still only at the start the only thing that I was very much um I'm like Katie I need to give you the biggest shout out ever because like my biggest thing was feeding. I was so nervous about that, having been through um, a situation before and now going through it again. And um, that was something I really didn't have information on. So th- there was a lot of information on your page. And I obviously, I'm going into different phases now because we're only at the 16 weeks. So it'll probably be about five or six more accounts that I love because I haven't got into weaning stuff yet or anything like that. So there probably would be more added to that. Yeah, I think it's amazing as a parent, you kind of grow through different stages. So when your little one reaches another stage, you start fi- you start following different accounts. And I would even say that yeah. as a parent, I my eldest is 13. So um, we've got like 13 to four and like it's a huge age range. Like I know that they're condensed, but I would follow different things that like each child is hitting different uh, kind of milestones, I suppose, at that stage. Um, so yeah, I, I'm a bit like you. I'm, I'm not a big podcaster. Um, I find I don't really have time. So if I've got time to flick, I'm nearly on the phone looking at different accounts. I find when I do want to listen to a podcast, I've started listening to crime stuff and weird things I never listen to. And I think it's just because I just need to clear my Online, mind of everything. It's, it's all the rage. We should yeah. start getting into crime. Some yeah. of our other guests was big into the listening to crime yeah. podcast. Yeah, no, it's, it's a big thing. People love listening to crime stories and the motivation behind them. Yeah. It makes us feel better about ourselves. Um, Sabrina, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on in our podcast. And we know that you're from Cork and Cork people would loathe um, coming up to Dublin for anything. But if you're ever, ever come up to Dublin, we have a lovely gift for you to say thank you for coming on our podcast. Oh, thank Um, you. So um, Eden One is an amazing um, place. It's a gym and it's a spa and it's Ireland's leading luxury day spa destination. Oh, I've heard so much about this. Well, Eden have kindly gifted you one of their signature packages and are delighted to treat you to an ultimate day spa escape whenever you can pry yourself out of Cork and come and visit us up here in Dublin. Oh, not at all. Oh, thank you so much. Just to say thank, thank you. You, you so deserve it after everything you've been through yeah, between no, the pregnancy. You know they look after they you. Actually do you do. <laughs> they look after you really, really well. So thank you so much for coming on our show. It's been an amazing chat and thank you for being so open with us. And I'd say our listeners have really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank guys. you, thank Sabrina. You thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Baby Tribe podcast. We hope you found inspiration and valuable insights to help you on your parenting journey. Remember, you're doing an amazing job. Thanks for being part of the Baby Tribe community. See you next week.